Transportation is a journey connecting us in our everyday lives. This podcast series, TRB's Transportation Explorers, takes you on that journey with meaningful conversations with the experts behind the research. They often have an early eye on how we'll build the transportation of tomorrow. On today's podcast, we'll talk with Amy Benedict, who was the principal investigator for TRB's Behavioral Traffic Safety Cooperative Research Program's first report. There has to be a willingness to educate the public on why driving while distracted is an important safety concern. And there has to be an understanding that electronic device use enforcement is an important part of a traffic safety program. Hi, I'm Elaine Farrell. And I'm Paul Mackey with the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine based in Washington, D.C. Amy is a senior study director at the research organization Westats, and the report using electronic devices while driving, legislation and enforcement implications was created with sponsorship from the Governor's Highway Safety Association. The report looks at current legislation about distracted driving and proposes ways to enforce legislation and educate the public about distracted driving. Welcome, Amy. In 2018, there were 2,841 people in the U.S. killed in motor vehicle collisions involving distracted driving. It seems so many people are distracted while driving these days and that there may indeed be much larger numbers of deaths than even, than even that large number. How big of a problem is it, particularly looking at cell phones while driving? Distracted driving is a major traffic safety issue, um, but there's two things that we need to consider about that estimate that you just shared with us about 2,841 people. The first is that driver distraction is likely underreported as a cause in crashes. Therefore, fatalities that are involving distracted driving might actually be much greater than we think. And this is most likely because motorists are less likely to indicate that they were driving distracted after a crash occurs. And also because it's really difficult for law enforcement to prove that someone else was driving distracted. The other thing that we should consider about that estimate is that it pertains to all forms of distraction, as you sort of alluded to, not just distraction from cell phones or electronic devices. And we don't really have a good handle on the number of deaths that are specifically attributed to distracted driving due to electronic device use. And the reason for this is that not all state crash forms have the ability to record the specific type of distraction. You know, and again, as I said, it's often really difficult to Um, verify that an electronic device was being used in the aftermath of a crash. So that number is likely much greater, you know, and that's just deaths. You know, there's definitely probably more crashes as well as serious injuries that can be attributed to distracted driving. Communications is is certainly an issue uh, and just, you know, people are surely driving distracted and they know that they're driving distracted, but it hasn't risen to the level of perhaps seatbelt, the, the awareness of the not having seatbelts on uh, decades ago. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I thought that was really well communicated in the report, and we at the Transportation Research Board uh, did send out some social media and uh, it got a lot of interest, a lot of likes and clicks and shares when it was communicated, sort of painting a picture of when reading a text while driving, a person's eyes are off the road for an average of five seconds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
texting in slow traffic is dangerous probably because you're you're there are pedestrians and bicyclists and other vulnerable road users around but at 55 miles per hour going faster that's like driving the length of a football field while blindfolded just thought that that was that really painted a picture of this is something you should not be doing yeah so it very much the truth. Um, you know, when we talk about distraction, there's three sort of main things we, we reference. We talk about visual distraction, taking your eyes off the road. There's manual distraction, taking your hands off the wheel. And there's cognitive distraction, taking your mind off driving. Well, the act of texting or doing any type of manipulation of an electronic device incorporates all three of those types of distractions. So yeah, it's, it's very scary, you know, and it's very scary to think that someone has the ability to go such a great distance in such a short time period while being distracted visually, manually, and cognitively. Elaine, we as communicators probably need to pick up on that, those kinds of messages that are, that are throughout the report and, uh, and go with them. The report uh, goes into a lot of examples of ways that jurisdictions in the US and Canada have addressed distracted driving. Uh, and it focuses specifically, the report focuses on legislation, on enforcement, and on education, which is a part of that communications element. What are, uh, what are the most successful ways that places have taken a bite out of the distracted driving problem using those three mechanisms, legislation, enforcement, and education? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say those three mechanisms, legislation, enforcement, and education, because in order to be successful at any traffic safety issue, at attacking any traffic safety issue, you need to make sure that you have those three working in concert. You know, for a traffic safety program to be effective, there has to be strong legislation. There has to be a willingness to educate the public on why driving while distracted is an important safety concern. And there has to be an understanding that electronic device use enforcement is an important part of a traffic safety program. You're right, we heard a lot of different strategies with respect to these three topics. So uh, I can kind of go through each of them. With legislation, the first thing and probably the most important thing is that we heard that the proposed language of the law needs to be inclusive and carefully scrutinized to limit any exceptions or loopholes. And similar to that, components of the law should be very clearly defined. So what I mean by this is, for example, using the term electronic devices instead of cell phones. You know, I'm gonna kind of liken this to the fact that we call crashes crashes and not accidents anymore when we're talking about car crashes. So electronic devices allows for more of a broad interpretation of the devices that are prohibited. Um, another example is the term manipulating instead of texting. You know, texting is very limited and it's also very difficult for an officer to enforce because how do you prove somebody was texting if you are reading the law specific to the letter of the law? Whereas if you say manipulating in your language, the officer only really needs to witness the person engaging with the device to some degree. So when I say this, I sort of am sort of implying that the law needs to be enforceable. And one of the other kind of main things we heard is there's, it's really important to include law enforcement as one of your partners when you're developing legislation because you wanna get their buy-in 
and you want to know that the law is something that can be enforced. And another way to make sure a law can be enforced is that you want it to have minimal exemptions. So for example, using navigation. So often that's allowed. Um, but too many of those exemptions also makes the law difficult to enforce because it's loopholes. So, um, and I would say with respect to legislation, one of the last things we, one of the other main things that we heard is that forming a coalition is critical to the success of either enacting or revising an electronic device use law. You know, and there's a lot of different potential partners. They can be government as well as non-government stakeholders, as well as victim advocates. So one kind of interesting example that we heard in our discussions was inviting people of opposing groups to the table, um, to the coalition meetings. And this is so that you can better understand their views and determine whether or not you might be able to simply address any concerns they have or a compromise can be achieved. So for example, in some of the states, there was concern about racial profiling if the law was strengthened. Um, and this was addressed by adding a simple amendment that mandated an annual review of citation demographics. So something very quick and easy that would help get more buy-in and support for the law. Um, I'll talk about education next. Uh, education, and the reason I'm gonna say that before enforcement is because it's important to educate before you enforce. You know, if it, you wanna explain to the public why this is important before you start to crack down on it. So with education and outreach, we heard that um, in many of states, this really only occurred during Distracted Driving Awareness Month. And this is because of funding issues. Something that a lot of the states struggle with is identifying funds for messaging. So they can only really target one time of the year to be able to do this. And when they do spread out, spread their message about distracted driving or electronic device use legislation, outreach efforts typically include social media, um, radio, TV commercials, public events, a lot of times programs in the schools so that they can address the topic with younger drivers. But again, because funding is limited, these, these are often the result of partnerships. So as I alluded to earlier, education and outreach is trickiest because of funding. Several of the representatives that we spoke to were interested in receiving funding through NHTSA 405E grants and were also somewhat frustrated or confused as to how they're able to become eligible for that money. With enforcement, so that's the third component to this, enforcement for it to be effective, effective, it needs to be sustainable, meaning that it has to occur throughout the year as well, and it has to be highly visible. So that means buy-in. That means leadership within the agency need to have a visible commitment to addressing the topic of distracted driving, specifically electronic device use while driving. There has to be training for law enforcement officers meaning they have to understand why this law is important, what the safety concerns are, and then how to also convey that to motorists when they do pull them over. Because a traffic stop is an opportunity to educate as well. Uh, there have to be various enforcement strategies. And I'm sort of pausing here because none of these strategies, there's no single best method for enforcing distracted driving. 
a lot of the different states that we spoke with had a variety of creative approaches, you know, whether it be spotters, use of spotters, and then somebody down the road pulling the person over. It just kind of takes doing the enforcement as opposed to not enforcing the law. But there's no, no real strategy stood out as more effective than others. And then having a data-driven approach with your enforcement is really important. So you want to make sure that you are looking at your crash and your citation data so that you know where to enforce, what population of people you might be trying to reach. And you also need to know if your enforcement is, it helps you know if your enforcement is working. You alluded earlier to funding from NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and without going into too much legalese around that, can you discuss uh, how you are eligible, how states are eligible for this funding for encouraging safe driving habits? Yeah, so NHTSA has various highway safety grant programs. And I think uh, according to their website, it's over $500 million a year in grant programs annually to the 50 states and territories. And 8.5% the section 405 funds, so that's a percentage of those funds, are reserved specifically for distracted driving. The caveat though, is that state traffic initiatives and laws must meet a series of requirements to be able to qualify for these grants. So for example, a state must enact or enforce a prohibition on texting, as well as a prohibition on the use of all electronic devices for drivers age 18 and younger. And there's several other additional requirements. Um, NHTSA does have these posted on their website so that states, when they're developing their laws, can review these and, and attempt to meet them. At the time we conducted the study, there were only four states that were eligible for 405E funding, Connecticut, Maine, Oregon, and New Jersey. And when we spoke with Maine and Connecticut, they explained that in order to be eligible for this funding, they convened a team of partners that included highway safety office personnel, police officers, DMV representatives, judicial members, lawyers, as well as representatives from NHTSA. You might think it's kind of interesting that they included partners from the DMV, well, that's because one of the requirements is that the driving test must include a question on distracted driving. So there's a, there's a whole host of requirements and about three or four pages long. So I won't go into them today, but um, they are relatively well spelled out, but it's, it's definitely a feat for states to be able to meet all of these requirements to be eligible. So Amy Benedict and you you and the authors of the the report focused on the use of electronic devices while driving but there are other ways drivers can be distracted. It seems like a really gray area is how do you determine what is distracted? We've always we've always reached forward to turn the knob or or hit the buttons on the radio and it seems like I'm okay while doing that in the car but my wife will yell at me if I reach to fast forward to the next song within my YouTube music app that's on my phone. So what are, what are some other distractions that are sort of rise up to, the, to a really important level? How do we communicate and tell people what 
distractions are bad versus better? And, and what are the solutions to mitigating these factors? Yeah, so as you said, there's a lot of different ways a driver can be distracted. And this can be anything from eating, grooming, talking to a passenger, completely leaning over the seat to get something from the back of the car, doing some other secondary task, or even listening to a very engaging podcast. There have been times I've been driving and listening to a really interesting podcast and I'm at work. How did I get to work? And that's scary, you know, because that meant my mind was not on the task of driving. It was on absorbing and listening to this podcast. So as I touched on earlier, you know, there's different forms of distraction. There's visual, taking your eyes off the road, manual, taking your hands off the wheel, and cognitive, taking your mind off driving. So the degree to which these different behaviors distract a driver varies, and the risk varies. You know, and if you think about something like texting or manipulating an electronic device while driving, you're involving all three of those types of distraction. I won't go as far as to venture and say, you know, how many of those components of distraction are you involving equal the potential for greater risk. And I don't have as much experience, you know, researching other areas of distraction. So I won't probably go into too many ways to mitigate these factors. But I think it really does take that trifecta of you know, legislation, education, and enforcement. How do you convey to the general public that just reaching over to change the, the song that you're listening to could be distracting? Well, that's tough because that's a behavior that many people do and we have been doing for a long time. I don't know that I have the answer to that, to be honest with you. It's certainly a big and it's uh, and it's a difficult problem, but uh, but we did improve safety and and public use of seatbelts over time. So I think there's always room for optimism. Oh, I was just going to say it would be interesting if we could gather data on the reaching to kids in the back or dogs mm. crawling onto your lap. Um, you know, obviously that's not a problem we're going to solve today. No, but it's it's very true. But it's and it's also really hard data to collect. You know, that's that's a lot of the problem with distraction is it would be a lot easier to make recommendations for legislation as well as how to enforce, as well as how to educate. If we really understood the types of distractions that are causing crashes on the roadway. It seems like maybe technology may play a role, like with uh, red light and speed cameras. Perhaps there's there's some way to do it through that way. But that's a whole different discussion. We, we <laughs> usually like to learn a little bit about our, our guests here. And uh, so you have a bachelor's in chemistry and biology. The first part of the question is, how did you decide to get into research? And from there, what made you decide to sort of transition into a transportation focus? Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting story and, you know, somewhat of a long and windy road, no pun intended. My first job actually is in microbiology. I was a microbiologist at the National Institutes of Health. And um, my actual first work in the field of transportation was a sleep and health study that involved long haul truck drivers. And from that point on, I was hooked. You know, I saw that the highway was a dangerous place and there was a lot of work that could be done to help prevent crashes and save lives. According to the National Safety Council, in 2020 alone, 42,000 people died in motor vehicle crashes. And what's kind of staggering about that is that's an 8% increase over 2019. What I don't know in that statistic is 
how, how does that compare to how many vehicles were on the road? Because obviously in, in 2020, we had a pandemic and less vehicles were on the road, yet we potentially had more people dying in crashes. That's extremely concerning. We know distraction played a part in, in some of these deaths. What would you say right now is the most important research to undertake about distracted driving? So I think there are several research needs on this topic, but I think it's really important for us to have a better understanding on the impact of legislation, education, and enforcement on changing motorist behavior. You know, specifically, we need to collect and analyze data that help us measure the effects of these laws on crashes, injuries, and fatalities, because we don't have that data. And that data is what can guide not just future laws, but also enforcement efforts and also how we educate the public and future research. The availability of data is really lacking, you know, and another component to this is that we could really understand how to make these laws more impactful. For example, some laws have incremental fines and penalties, but there's no data to support whether or not that's effective with respect to electronic device use. Does increasing the fine with increased citations for someone have an impact on their behavior? Does it change their behavior? You know, or is it something that really education is going to be the thing that causes the behavioral change? You know, we reference seatbelts and, and seatbelt compliance a lot because that is sort of our best comparison case study. Amy, you have given us an awful lot to think about here today. Is, did we miss anything? Is there anything else you would like to add or any messages about distracted driving you think everyone should know? Resist the urge, you know, it's it, no text message, no social media communication is that important that you need to respond while you're driving. While you're driving, you should be focused on driving and that should be your primary task. The only other thing I'd like to say is, you know, I would like to extend a thank you to all of the state and provincial representatives um, that we spoke to when we were um, doing the research for this study. We appreciate the time they took, um, as well as the wonderful ideas and, and outreach and enforcement efforts that they shared with us. Yes, and, and your work with the Transportation Research Board and the National Academies is really appreciated as well, Amy. We thank you for all the time you've given us. There's also a, a webinar up online that people interested in this topic should definitely check out. Yes, and I extend my thanks to you for both your time on the webinar and this podcast. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun. GRB's Transportation Explorers is a production of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Ben Brown composed our theme music. The podcast is produced by Paul Mackey and me, Elaine Farrell, and edited by me. Thanks again for tuning into TRB's Transportation Explorers. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. See you next time on the transportation journey.